Lamentations 4. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Lamentations chapter 4. We're just going to kind of do a handful of verses here, jot it around. If you are just now joining us in this sermon series, we've been walking through the book of Lamentations, revisiting Jerusalem's destruction at the hand of the Babylonians. And we are working at how to lament as a church. And today we will look at two, uh, nope, three primary issues that surface. Uh, well, yeah, two, overall two. Idolatry and the need to turn from idolatry. In chapter four of Lamentations, we see some instances of the author becoming vulnerable. This would be expected because if you've undergone suffering and hardship, you know that it kind of has the effect of exposing you. It can expose anything you hold as ultimate, anything you may be treating in your life as if it or someone is like God in your life. And we can call that idolatry. So how do we define idolatry? This is my very much uninspired definition. Idolatry is when we make something or someone who is not God, like they are God. The conflict, as you will see in, in this chapter, is that Jerusalem had forgotten who they were and why they were called Zion, the city of God. Their love and worship over the centuries began the slow aim at the blessings of God rather than God himself. The result is what we could call wrongly ordered loves. Good things turned into God things. And creating an expectation from those good things now turned into God-sized things to deliver the joy and the happiness and the security and even the salvation that only God can deliver. Idolatry begins with a conversation of worship. Psalms 95 verse 6 describes the basic posture of worship that shows us what it really is. It says, come, let us worship, let us bow down. Let us kneel before our maker. To bow before something, to kneel, the verbiage used here really refers not just bowing down, but actually laying prostrate, like face down on the floor. To bow or to be prostrate before God is to be face down before him. It is a physical act that reveals your understanding of the God you are worshiping. He is so much higher than you, so much bigger than you, so much more majestic and holy and almighty and all-powerful that to even be in his presence, it jars you with the urge to simply lie down before him, face down. We get similar feelings when we stand before something so much larger than ourselves. For years, I've attended a leadership conference for the Church Planting Network in Estes Park in Colorado. There is nothing like, if you've seen them, nothing like seeing those snow-capped rocky mountains. And the drive up the mountains is just one of the best parts of the whole retreat. Something peculiar happens, though, when you see something of that size, when you're standing before it. Well, this is a mixture of awe and fear, especially when these quick storms kind of breeze through quickly and almost, you know, uh, 
many mile an hour winds just coming through and lightning strikes just pouring rain and then it's sunny like two seconds later the mountain seems to be almost swirling in just like power when you see that something strange happens that it feels good to stand before it there is something in our humanity that loves to be awed we love to feel small before something so big The idea of laying prostrate before God would not necessarily be one of fear, but I think of love and joy because you would feel the immense wonder and pleasure of your smallness and the vastness of the God of the universe. I think it was John Piper that said, people don't go to the Grand Canyon to feel big, right? Idolatry comes when the love of our hearts grows fond of something so much that we find ourselves laying prostrate before it, oftentimes our heart posture. We develop in us a love for something so, so deep that we try to find our ultimate joy in it, and really we're trying to find salvation. We know we're small as humans. We know we are not ultimate. Even if we try to act like we are, we know we're not. We know that you and I are not sufficient in ourselves. A famous theologian once referred to our hearts as idol factories. We're always drumming up new idols to worship, something outside of us to bow down to because we know we are not enough in ourselves. We need something from the outside to come in and fill the voids and gaps that we have inside of our own souls. And what we worship in turn shapes us. What we worship is what we become like. What we bow down before shapes us in the image of that idol. David says this very clearly in the Bible on numerous occasions. Psalm 115.8 says, Those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. What you worship has a counter effect to shaping you and changing you. And everything that is not God is simply not enough to actually save you or bring you ultimate joy or happiness. Philosopher and author James K.A. Smith from Calvin College has this to say in his book, You Are What You Love. He says this, Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is at the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. It's a very helpful metaphor there. As we dive into the text this morning, we're going to see that Jerusalem had fallen prey to worshiping the creation rather than the creator, to worshiping God's blessings to them rather than the God behind the blessings. There's three things that surface here amongst many. Many of the, of the, of the same issues we've seen so far are repeated, so I try to pull out the things that have not shown up yet in Lamentations. There's three things. The worship or idolatry of wealth, success, and progress— The idolatry and worship of people, and also leaders, and also of government and nations. 
So the roadmap ahead of us will be looking at these three issues in this chapter in the context of Jerusalem, looking at some practical today issues of worship as found um, here and what all this means for us as a church. So uh, before we read some scripture for Lamentations 4, let me, we can't pray enough, let me pray one more time. Lord Jesus, we pray that your word would read us, that we would not just read your word, but the scriptures would read us, and that our hearts would be willing to hear what it says through this lament process of uh, Jeremiah as you wrote this book, just lamenting the fall of Jerusalem, that we would take heed to the things that surface in the suffering, that surface in this lament as they mourn what was lost. And Lord, maybe you listen to your words, maybe you open our ears to hear it and give us soft hearts to receive what you have for us. We love you, Jesus, so much. By your Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning and change us in the deep, formative ways that we need. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's dive into the first one, the idolatry of wealth, success, and maintaining it all. Limitations 4.1 says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. With a quick read at the beginning of 1 Kings, when Solomon builds the temple of God in Jerusalem, the same one that was demolished, the holy stones that they're talking about, we know that this was an ornate temple. It was covered in gold from the inside and out. The Ark of the Covenant, which slid at the Holy of Holies, was covered in gold. The temple was beautiful. It stood as a proud symbol of God's presence and protection of the land. It was ornate, symbolizing the majesty of God and the wonder and his power. And the onlookers to such a temple should consider the grand majestic God that the temple represents, the mighty God that is transcendent above themselves, the place that they would go to to meet him. Jerusalem, however, over the centuries forgot why the temple stood. They forgot why it was built. They forgot that the temple was supposed to point Jerusalem to God, and they began seeking for other guarantees from its gold and jewels. Still covered in all of that gold, they began trusting in the temple itself. And this is what I mean. The temple became a symbol for Jerusalem's success over the centuries. Its wealth, current and former. And it served as a symbol that God still cared for the city, if it was still standing. Apart from their own heart's affections and apart from even how they lived. Jeremiah shows this in his famous temple sermon. Standing at the gates of the temple, Jeremiah preached a very fiery sermon to all who walked through the gates. And we find in this sermon that Judah had developed a catchphrase of sorts that became kind of like a mantra of security for them that contributed to the spiritual blindness that marred them in the last years of their existence before the exile. The phrase was this, Jeremiah 7, 4 says, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah said, those are deceptive words that you were trusting to no avail. 
The idea was that Jerusalem thought it was good and safe as long as this beautiful temple stood. It meant Yahweh was with them. And as long as that was the case, they were safe. But however, as a nation, nothing could have been farther from the truth. They were robbing from the poor, giving half-hearted love and devotion to God, and dividing it up amongst other false gods. They were treating one another horribly whenever they felt insecure about the path of their nation. They looked at Jerusalem, and they viewed the temple, and they said, oh, the temple's still standing, the temple of, the God, of God. We're good. We're safe. The gold-laden temple became a symbol of their success, became a symbol of God's love and presence and his watchful care over them, but they forgot God himself. Now, I think in our own country, in all our own families, and even individually, we have our own temples that stand, that you and I trust in for security and safety. There are many lies that you and I have bought into over the decades in America that says that our standard of living must always be in this increased trajectory— that the lack of contentment literally being what drives our economy. And if our kids are to have this good childhood in our nation, that they need to have these grand, often very expensive experiences, this nonstop fun and, and mounds of toys built up in the house, there are lies. There are lies that say you should not be content with your measly position at work, and even if you make a decent salary, you need to always be seeking promotions and avoid this mundane future of the, of the daily grind and, and dole of life, right? You should always be seeking something more and something more exciting and, and fun. And if you have another attitude, it means that you are missing the American dream. Listen, this is some weird, strange statistics. In 1940, the average American home was 800 to 1,000 square feet. The average American family had three to four kids. Today, the average American home is 1,800 to 2,200 square feet, and we have one to two children. I think we need to stop when we read those statistics and say, huh, what's going on? I do believe that we've allowed our hearts to think that we need more stuff nicer homes, more money, more luxurious experiences, and more conveniences if we are to be happy, if we are to feel successful, if we are to feel like things are safe and okay in our lives. A quick side note here. Other pastors have pointed this out before, this little side rant, just because I do have six children, so it's a conversation that's kind of dear to my heart. We may look in ancient times I'm talking to young people today, really. Um, and we see the paganism that often required child sacrifice. And we say, that's nuts. I can't believe people used to sacrifice children at the altar of worship. Such archaic people. But then we may draw some lines today to the modern realization of abortion, even though it's, there's some uh, complications with doing that strictly, but still there's a reality that says, yes, that's the case, but there's other lines that we aren't so quick to draw. Is it that America's always rising standard of living, bigger homes, more money, and nicer cars, have come at the expense of having less children? Is it that we'd rather have fewer cars for the sake of the advancement, or sorry, fewer children for the sake of the advancement of our career? So we can do more and climb the ranks without the inconvenience and responsibility and the expense of children. Is it not just modern forms of child sacrifice? But rather than at the pagan altar, 
we hold them to our bank accounts. And we prevent ourselves from having children so we may have more opportunity to have more and to climb ladders. Who is actually at the scheme of that? Is it you? Is it us? Another strange thing about all of this is that our nation is actually suffering from diseases of despair more than ever before. According to Anne Case and Agnes Deaton, the most recent book called Diseases of Despair, in 1995, the amount of Americans who died from addictions, alcoholism, and self-harm was 63,000. Fast forward to today, this number has risen to 160,000 deaths a year. We become richer, wealthier, with larger homes and more stuff than ever before, but we're more depressed than ever before and more addicted than ever before. Diseases of despair has become so prevalent in our nation that it has actually had the effect of decreasing life expectancy in 2018 until present day. Is that you this morning? Have you shown up stressed out beyond your wildest dreams because you're working around the clock? Are you mounted in debt from things you don't need, your credit cards maxed, because you've, and you've even forgotten how you even maxed them out? What if your holy stones were to be lied, scattered about the streets as they were in Jerusalem? Do we need to lament this morning of our obsession over wealth and materials and success Forgetting the God who has provided for us these wonderful things that can be good. The second idol presented in Lamentations 4 is the idolatry of a person or people. And specifically for Jerusalem, their loss of leaders. These verses may sound odd to 21st century ears, but this is how they felt about their leaders as a nation. In verse 7, there's more verses here I can read. It says this, her, Jerusalem's, chapter 4, verse 7, her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies are more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form is like sapphire. Uh, chapter 4, verse 20, the breath of our nostrils. That's, the Hebrew word there is, is ruach, it's, it's spirit. Uh, it can be translated the spirit of our nostrils, right? The Lord's anointed. They were captured in their pits. Speaking of their leaders. They're referred to as the spear of the nation, the, the leaders of whom we said, under their leaders, under his shadow, shall we live among the nations. In verse 14, we, we, we see the leaders were wandering blind throughout the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to even touch them. And they cried, away, unclean, people cried at their leaders. Away, do not touch. And their leaders became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no more. And their leaders were scattered. Israel was a monarchy, living in an honor-shame culture. And to be the king was the highest in the land. And once again, if you trace uh, Israel's kingly roots and their kingly story, their own kings came all the way back in 1 Samuel, when they wanted to be like all the nations around them. God was not pleased with this request, because as he said, they rejected me from being king. They didn't ask for a king that could help lead them to God, but rather a king that would make them more like the nations that surrounded them, and that's a big difference. As you see in this passage, they lamented the loss of these kings, and we see just how much they revered their own leaders. Their loss was actually carved into their process of lament as they mourned the empty and desolate throne 
Which spurs the question that I want to ask this morning as we talk about idolatry in this lament process. Can you hold people and individuals in your life in such high esteem that you are treating them as if they can deliver unto you what only God can deliver? That another person can make you just feel fulfilled and can fill those voids in your life. Oftentimes other people can become your safety and security in life. And I'll be honest, I have six children. Uh, my oldest is 10, my youngest is one. My wife is literally, uh, if, if I had my imagination develop a, a wife and a mom of, of all the ideals, she, she exceeds that. I don't know how she even said yes to me, but that was God's grace. I married up. I married far up. There's moments when they're, my kids are playing and, and we're on the couch, it's usually Monday mornings is my day off and we have a lazy morning and we're drinking coffee and the kids are playing and walking around and and I have the thought what if something were to happen to to one of these we hear stories right of young families whose mom's taken away so quickly or a, a child who's taken away in a car wreck or sickness and I know that in my own heart if there's an idol it is running around in that room right it is the wife that I'm I will be crushed if something were to happened to them. You would see your pastor crumble up if something were to happen to them. And this might be the most difficult area for you and I, for we can love people so dearly and other people can give us the feeling of meaning and relationships can help fill emptiness in our lives because it's God's design, right? He designed humanity to not be alone. Friendship and relationships and marriage, they're they're God's design, But in Christ, Christianity has made a unique claim that says God is sufficient for you and I. It makes the claim that every relationship in our own lives that are given to us and brought to us are intended to just remind us of the never-ending love of God. But we often exchange the love of others for the love of God. Romans chapter 1 once again reveals this in its entirety. In the age of social media, Tristan Harris and and others who are some of the architects of social media kind of has uh, this aspect of our humanity has been kind of surfaced in really unique ways because they know that you and I, we truly have a never-ending thirst and hunger for attention from others. They knew that creating these social media platforms in which all peoples of the world can connect combined with things like how many people follow you online, how many clicks you get, you know, uh, get liked, and how many views your video receives, how many people comment on it, etc. It dominates your brain, so you just want to keep looking and see, well, who else is liked it? Who else is giving me attention online? Who else? And this is a plague especially for young people today because it feels good when we get attention. A very silly example is this, and I... I I, I know, I'm a nerd. I love reading like classic uh, Rome and Greek literature, right? And there's a page they post jokes that only nerds would get about classical Rome, right? And so then I posted a joke because I thought I could. And I got 2,000 likes. You should have seen me that morning. I was so just like impressed with myself. I was like, huh, I went viral with the nerds. This is great. So I hope you're impressed with me now, right? But that morning I just kept checking. I was like, oh. I got more likes. This is, this is great, right? Jerusalem found much pride in their leaders, right? They forgot why God wanted to give them a leader. For that leader to be their shepherd, their guide to himself, 
to care for the nation like a shepherd cares for its sheep. And the prophets continually brought this to Israel's attention. Jeremiah repeats this continually throughout his prophetic book in chapters 2 and 6 and 12 and 17. He's calling on the leaders of Israel because, yeah, I, I shifted to leaders. I missed a little transition because, yes, we like attention as well and we, we can hold other people in high esteem, but then we need to talk about how we can do the same thing with our leaders and hold them to high esteem. As we saw just the attitude towards the leaders, they were ruddy princes, right? And they were, they were, they were mourning the loss of these leaders, Now, do you believe that your life is more than your relationships? Do you believe that this church is more than its leader? If you live for the affection of others, if you live for the attention of others, if you treat them in your life as if they are ultimate, that it gives you ultimate purpose and meaning and wholeness, you will never have enough of it. You'll never be whole. And I want to talk about specifically this church for a moment. I ask of you, beg of you, please don't hold me in too high esteem. I'm going to fail you, Emmanuel. Just give me enough time here, and I'm going to do something stupid. You're going to say, what did he do? A church built on personality collapses when that personality collapses. I've witnessed this in my own life. A church of 15,000 people that was one of the most influential churches in our nation with a larger-than-life center that was an author. I mean, he could preach for 75 minutes. He would just listen from one minute to the very last and wish for more. I mean, truly a larger-than-life person. When he was exposed for his sins, this 15,000-person church within a month vanished. And that's a true story because I was kind of close in that conversation what was happening. Don't idolize your leaders or your pastor. It's not healthy for the pastor at all. Get to their head and make them think of themselves more than they ought. And it's not healthy for the church. Jesus is our chief shepherd. We must learn to make him the center of Emmanuel Church. And more on that conversation in the coming weeks. And the final idol surfaced in Jerusalem's lament was the idol of government that a nation could save him for its woes. Lamentations 4.17 says this. In the midst of their turmoil, in the midst of all that was happening, they said, our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. Throughout various tumultuous times in Israel's history, when sin grew and their nation became fragile, rather than humbly prostrating themselves before God in worship, pleading for his help, they often looked to other nations around them for help. Isaiah had this to say. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, Isaiah 31 verse 1, and rely on horses whose trusts and chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they were strong. Do not look, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Israel would seek other nations' help often in times of need because those nations essentially had the bigger guns or in those days more horses and chariots, more strength. And Israel thought wrongly that if only they had more power and strength, they would be saved. So they looked to the nation that had it. If there's an area I think we need to lament as a nation, it might be here. Many of us, our nation as a whole, has come to really start thinking that if there's a wrong person sitting in office, that means that almost certain destruction is looming. 
In recent days, I've even seen Christian leaders use apocalyptic language and saying that if a certain leader were to take office, it means the world is almost assuredly going to come to an end. I'm going to try to uh, call this for what it is, and this is borderline dangerous of idolatry of state. Just as, as Israel in desperate times looked to other nations and governments for strength and salvation, you and I must not make the same error with our own government and look to the White House for salvation. When I hear Christian leaders talk like this, it reminds me of a map that I had in my classroom when I was teaching. It was a map of the world. I use this illustration often in class because as a whole, all the continents spread out, but guess what lied at the very center of the map? You might want to guess. It was our own nation. North America, specifically the USA. When you looked at the map, your eyes went whoop, straight to our nation. And the map was trying to display that we, we are at the very center of the world. Even the scale of the land was off. Like America looked the same size as Russia. We're only half as large. But I want to say this. Beware of theology that places America at the center of world history. Beware of theology that places us at the center of biblical history. I wouldn't trust those teachers in full. Chances are almost certain that America is not in our Bibles. I don't know, maybe it is. But chances are there's been a lot of nations in world history that didn't make it in there. We're probably one of those. Chances are one day America will not be. But God will be. Your faith is to be separate from political parties. Our Christian faith is intended to be in the world, but not of the world. Separate from worldly entities while still being among them. We don't know the day or the hour, Emmanuel. And be weary of the ones that claim that they do. The most important thing we can do in this election season is, while we vote, which seems only responsible to do, it is to look at the American flag and say, as a Christian, my life and salvation is not dependent on you. My hope for life is not found in you being raised high on the flagpole, high, flying high above the world's powers. The ultimate hope for the ills of our nation is not found in the red, white, and blue and its strength and who leads us, but in the closeness of its people to Jesus Christ. We must not bow to our American flag or give our ultimate allegiance to it. And don't forget that you and I hold the highest office, the highest office in our land. We are the ones doing the voting. Our leaders only mirror our voting. And if we really want to see our land healed, go love God with all of your might, with all of your heart, and all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. For we, if we did so, love, grace, and truth would rule the day in our nation as God is love and filled with grace and truth. And America will be on a rapid path towards healing and renewal. The gospel message is, in fact, one of love, one of a call to self-sacrifice, a call to hold God as our Savior, and to love others as Jesus has loved us. As we close, I want to do a brief summary because it's been a little bit of a buckshot sermon. The idols, because lament has this in it, right? There's many things Israel needed to lament. We looked at three of those major ones that surface in this chapter. We've looked at the idols of wealth, success, and riches, the idols of people and leadership, and the idols of government and nations. We opened up by talking about how you and I are shaped by what we worship, that worship itself is the gymnasium that trains us and molds us into the image of what we lie prostrate before. 
like Jerusalem. We must be honest. Look in. And be, learn to be honest about yourself. I think that's the most hardest thing for you and I to do is to learn to be honest even about your own self. We must lament our idolatry. And we must turn from it. We must seek forgiveness from God. We must look to the gospel. We must see that Jesus, who was rich in the heavenly places with glory, became poor in taking on flesh, becoming as the lowliest of all, so that in him we might be rich in God. We must look to Jesus, who was willing to die for people who didn't even love him, who hung naked and alone on a cross, even for his own enemies holding his love for God as the greatest above all of his relationships and becoming a servant of all through his death and the savior of all through his resurrection. We must look to the city of God, knowing that Jesus Christ, with his crown of thorns and his royal robe filled with his own blood, reveals to us that he is our king and that all other kings in this world were only bowed down to the one and true king. His resurrection and his ascension back into heaven is the ultimate enthronement. And he who sits on the throne of David is and will indeed reign forever and ever. Listen, all false idols and all false worship has at its core something at the center. And I think it is you We worship the things we want or think we need. Ultimately, idolatry has you at the center. And whenever you recognize something you lack, you're the one going to look elsewhere to fulfill it. And so often it is not God. When Christians speak of being saved, this is what we mean. All of us are always continually seeking salvation in something or someone else that is not Jesus. And that is the nature of sin. And it's what Jesus died for in our place. The church is intended to be the city of God on earth that has Jesus as our king. The city within a city that reveals to the world the things and the things we love and reveals to the world in the way we live that we have that other king, that we have access to God through Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit and that he is the one who has saved us and that everything we are given in life is only pointing towards him. And that his self-giving love for us is our guide in how we love others around us. As we close, I want to read this quote from St. Augustine, one of the most brilliant thinkers in all of church history who lived in the 4th century AD, AD, and he witnessed the fall of Rome. And he wrote this in his magisterial book, The City of God. When I say idolatry is, is disordered loves or we're loving the wrong things before we love God. This is what I mean. He says it so poetically and beautifully. He says, accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former in the word glories in itself but the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own glory, and the other says to its God, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. 
And the one, the princes and the nations it subdues are ruled by the love of ruling. And the other, the princes and subjects serve one another in love, the latter obeying while the former take thought for all. For they were either leaders or followers of the people and adorning images and worshiped and served the creature more than a creator who was blessed forever. But in the other city, the city of God, there is no human wisdom but only godliness, which offers due worship to the true God and looks for its reward in the society of the saints, of holy angels, as well as holy men and women, that God may be all in all. As we close, Emmanuel, may we be quick to lament where our hearts have gone wayward in desiring wealth and success before God, loving people and others more than him, and trusting in our nation's chariots and horses rather than God's. May we be quick as a church to lament where we have held other people as ultimate in our lives, when we've sought fulfillment in other people rather than God, when we've held pastors and leaders in too high of esteem. And may we desire leaders to lead us to Jesus and not to their own personalities, charisma, or gifts set. May we be a church who always sees more hope in the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and the true city of God that is to come than any voting, voting booth, than any flag that is waving, or any political or entity. May we repent and turn where we need to. Let us pray. Jesus, I know there's a lot in this sermon that I said. Lord, if there's any part that somebody sitting here that the Spirit had just really pierced their hearts. Lord, repentance is not fun, Lord. It's not fun to talk about repentance of sin and turning from sin. But Lord, if there's any gap or void in anybody's heart this morning and something that I've mentioned this morning that was found in your word is just exposing that they are searching for fulfillment in this or in that or in that person or in, in, in whatever it might be in their jobs or careers or their bank accounts or the lack thereof. Lord, may we repent of that. May we look to you and say, Lord, I'm sorry for seeking to make something that is not God and, and treating it like it is. We've been seeking for salvation from other things rather than you. And we turn from that. And Lord, as a church in this process of lament, may we learn to, to really lay these, these foundations down that says, Lord, you are king of Emmanuel Church. So may we learn to operate as such. We love you so much, Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen. As we are going to close in a song, um, the elders will be up front, uh, available for prayer. If you need to grab one of us to pray, um, please do so.
from the fear of having nothing from a life of worldly passions deliver me from the need to be understood from my need to be accepted from the fear of being lonely deliver me oh god deliver me oh god and i shall not want no i shall not want when i taste your goodness i shall not want when i taste your goodness i shall not want from the fear of serving from the fear of death or trial from the fear of humility deliver me And I shall not want No I shall not want When I taste your goodness I shall not want No I shall not want No I shall not want When I taste your goodness I shall when I taste your goodness, I shall not want, I shall